Welcome everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Insight is Capital podcast. Today, I'm excited to have our longtime friend, Mark Noble, Executive Vice President, Head of ETF Strategy at Horizons ETFs, as my guest. Mark, how are you? Uh, great to be here as always, Spear. Amazing. Uh, it's been quite a uh, quite a year and, and quite a quarter uh, all around. Um, I thought I thought today would be a uh, a good opportunity to discuss yield producing assets, yield producing right. investments. Mark, with you know market dynamics shifting in in twenty two and into twenty three, investors are seeking strategies to outpace inflation and yep. traditional GICs, you know, uh, short term instruments. So I thought today maybe you could shed some light on covered call ETFs as an alternative strategy offering. Uh, also, I think you've, you've called it portable yield. Yeah. Um, I guess we can call it monetizing volatility as well. So stay tuned. Uh, Mark is here. We're going to talk about all this stuff. We're going to talk about the benefits <laughs> of covered calls, their tax advantages, and how they can enhance the yield of your overall portfolio without undermining your fixed income allocation. You don't want to miss this fascinating discussion on making the most of current market conditions. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Mark, welcome back. It's, it's terrific to see you and catch up with you. Uh, as I said just a moment ago, what a year it's been and what a quarter it's been. Right, I mean, really bizarre. <laughs> I think a, a lot of things that that people, you know, this was. I mean, people have talked about this being, you know, the, the, the at least the topic of recession that this, you know, being the most highly anticipated recession ever. But to me, like when there's that much consensus, there must be, um, you know, possibly something wrong with that. That such a wide market call as to. I don't think there's any doubt in people's minds that that there might be some kind of recession, but you know whether it's deep or, or mild or you know whatever people are characterizing it as today, that's a whole other ballgame, right? I mean, in the meantime, things are really sort of up in the air. There's volatility. Markets are you know bond markets all over the place. Um, equity markets have been all over the place, or you know very narrowly trading in a certain right. You know very low breadth. A rally that we've seen in in the S and P, so lots of uncertainty, lots of of um, you know, sort of not knowing what to do next, is kind of a pervasive thought. Um, and I, I think that's that's a perfect time to talk about what we are going to talk about today. Um, but before we get to that, I, I just wanted to say, Mark, um, you know, first of all, Mark, congratulations on Horizons ETFs launching Canada's first ultra short-term Canadian and U.S. T-bill ETFs. How is that? How is, I, I was surprised to find out as a result of your launch that before now there were no T-bill ETFs on the market. Why is that? Well, I, we were somewhat surprised as well. Uh, <laughs> and, and while we were going through a launch, we were almost wondering, you know, are we missing something here? Uh, why is this opportunity available to us? But I think it something as simple as the fact that if you were invested in T-bills, you know, 18 months ago, you weren't getting much of a yield at all. Um, and I think that the recurring yeah. theme in our discussion today is just going to be how fast 
interest rates have risen, which I think is creating a lot of this uncertainty you're talking about because a lot of us as investors and even professional investors have a strong cognitive bias to the last two decades of low interest rates that we're just not there from a headspace to understand what has occurred in terms of the speed and rapid growth of inflation and interest rates and what that means for the broader investment portfolio. We're in a completely new regime. Yeah. And so in the case of treasuries, there was just no real reason to own them uh, other than as a risk off ultimate risk off asset uh, as a placeholder in case there, you're in sort of a apocalyptic market condition. Um, so, you know, March of 2020s and the financial crisis where the only safe place to be was basically in cash or in treasury. Yeah. So, I mean, there's always been a, a portfolio aspect, but what we've seen now is you know, your five, your rate on three month T bills is roughly 5% on the US T bill. And that's fairly attractive from a historical perspective. Uh, but that's only a recent three to four month yeah. uh, phenomenon yeah. in terms of getting that high. And so I think that we were just recognizing that we're seeing an incredible influx into cash products in Canada, which have really been the proxy for the treasury trade. And so we looked at that environment and said there's probably a place now for T-bills alongside the cash alternatives because Canadian investors clearly have a huge appetite for cash. And it's actually astounding, Pierre. It's, it's last, last year, we raised $8 billion in the Canadian ETF market in cash products. Um, and yeah. we're closing in on $20 billion in cash alternatives. Uh, and this is a category that was pretty much close to nothing three years ago. So it, yeah. this is a real asset class that is offering compelling returns for investors that never existed because uh, we're looking at 50, 25 basis points kind of returns uh, in previous regime. Uh, but now investors with their concern about everything else, their cognitive view, their cognitive anchor is towards the idea, okay, I can get 5% from effectively risk-free assets, which right. is why I'm looking at these products. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I also view it as a sign of the times. It's just, I mean, we're we're at this pivotal moment, right? Where, where right. yeah, you're absolutely right. A year ago, these yields didn't exist, right? I mean, a year ago, nobody was asking for money market funds. Nobody actually thought, you know, the market's going to go down. I need a safe place to run to. And, and if I do that, where, you know, what's the opportunity cost of doing that too, right? I mean, all of those factors. And, and, and how long ago, I'm curious, how long ago did you start working on this launch just uh, well, we we have a product development team that's been always looking at things so this yeah. has been a, a product that's been at the forefront for a while so the, the etf is called uh yeah, i'm saying that because, treasury uh, yeah i'm saying that because you didn't just decide you know, like since no. you know the the banking blow up in the u.s to no, create a product that no. people could sweep cash into right no there, there's been well-established yeah. trend in the u.s with uh, the ETFs that cover that here. So yeah. our ETF up here is CBIL, C-B-I-L, right. uh, which is the Canadian version. And then we have UBIL, U-B-I-L.U for the U.S. version. And these ETFs are, there is a, a little bit of a market timing to the launch, uh, just in the fact that we've been so extraordinarily successful at raising money into our high-interest savings ETFs products. So We've raised over $4 billion to our firm alone last year in that particular category. Right. But, but you were saying that the, and the, the interest rate curve, you know, it seems to be the, the overriding theme in, in everything these days. The banks are actually 
Uh, if you look at GIC rates, for example, they're actually bringing those rates in. So you're high on the one year, of course, because right. the stored end of the curve is high. But actually, if you look right now, a five-year GIC gives you less interest rate than a one-year cashable GIC. I've yeah. never seen this in my entire career. Um, and so if we're looking at tactically where does something like this fit as a cash alternative, well, okay, it may actually be that on the high interest saving uh, products at a certain point, there might be a backup on rate because uh, those rates are actually being delivered from the bank depositors, extraordinarily safe ETFs with a very attractive yield being paid by the deposit, the, the deposit taking institutions, which are the large Canadian banks. But there could be a divergence. And I mean, we're already seeing on the GIT space where the interest rates that they're giving you are different than what the government's going to provide on the overnight. And that's just this actuarial view that the right. interest rates are going to come in. So we actually think that there could be uh, some positioning at a certain point in time where the yield that you're getting on short-term T-bills is just as attractive or in the same vicinity as what you're getting on high interest savings accounts. And of course, there's other aspects to holding something like C-bill, which is where you're really not worried at all about credit or deposit risk. And you really shouldn't be worried about it with the cash ETFs either, but right, right. it is something to keep into consideration. And then you've got also the fact that that short end of the curve is the most attractive yielding end of the curve for all investors. So I was you know, just seeing that uh, yesterday, for example, that the one month and three month difference uh, in yield is the highest inversion that's ever occurred. And the and the three months to the five year is the biggest inversion that's ever occurred. So actually, just from a yield generation perspective, that extreme short of the curve is the most attractive end yeah. of the curve. So if you're an income investor, it makes sense to be there. So you've got these two really attractive drivers for this asset class. Number one, you've got it as a potentially very attractive cash alternative, but you also have it as a very low risk way to generate income on the bond portfolio. And so treasuries no surprise, have been an incredible driver of assets in North America. Um, and that cash alternative space in in um, the U.S., for example, has seen over $32 billion in growth over last year. So we've obviously been watching this trend and waiting for that sort of be recognized by the Canadian marketplace. Amazing. It's it's, it's such a, I mean, as you said, it's such a strange time. But we're, we're sort of, you know, we, 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 were, we were in this, uh, you know, bear steepening for most of the year now it's starting to look like some bull steepening in the yield curve and and you, you're going to want a barbell right this makes it really right. easy to create a barbell Correct. in in a portfolio Correct. you know it's yeah. right there it's very handy i mean it's very straightforward too so so uh i don't i don't want to spend the entire conversation talking about something that's actually pl yeah. pretty plain vanilla it just makes it really easy to buy t-bills now without actually having to go and buy them directly uh in you know which is what traditionally people did in the past, right? Or right. you, you right. buy a money market fund, uh, like a mutual fund. Yeah, you fund. put managed those maturities yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is it safe to say uh, that we're in likely a, a uh, higher for longer, meaning there might not be, there might not be a, a significant um, amount of rate hike, you know, activity in the future or none at all, uh, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't imply that there's going to be rate cutting either. So given that we're going to be in a period where rates are where they are today and, and uh, you know, at the target, at the terminal rate that that was, you know, forecasted by the Fed, by the Bank of Canada, um, 
that transition that we're starting to see, like we're starting to see the knock-on effects of rates coming into the market. We're starting to see, you know, things, some things break. We're starting to see pressure on real estate. Uh, you know, at least there was pressure on homes until Tiff Macklem sort of backed off on it uh, in Canada, uh, you know, yesterday's economic report. But there's a lot of uncertainty because of what's yet to happen as a result of the absorption of higher rates. So that makes for a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility. Uh, here and there, we'll probably see some spikes. Um, but that elevated volatility, and and uh, in some cases, there are some some areas of the market that are very interesting, very attractive places to be. Uh, and using covered call ETF strategies, really, you can participate and get paid while you wait as well, get a yield. Um, I think one of the, you know, I, I listened to your your podcast with Nick Picard about uh, covered call uh, gold uh, gold ETFs, uh, right? I mean, you, you, yeah. you know, like with with bullion, if you just bought gold or GLD or something or, or a, a gold bullion ETF, you're, you're waiting for something to happen to gold. I mean, it has happened. We've seen a, a nice increase in the it's value right. of gold with the, the dollar coming off and, and buying uh, in gold rising. But while you're waiting for those activities to occur in the market, um, you know, that behavior, that, that pricing uh, to happen, um, you're not getting paid. But with a covered call ETF that, that buys bullion or buys gold stocks, um, you are, right? I mean, I, I'm just bringing that up as an example that that's an area where people might have some interest or, or an outlook that that's uh, alternative to what they're doing in their traditional portfolio. But maybe, um, you know, let, let, let's, uh, I don't know, maybe we should start at, at you know, something uh, like the beginning. <laughs> okay. How far back are we going? 1937? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think, I think what's interesting, you know, I, I remember, I remember talking to you and your colleagues back in, you know, 2009, 2010 about covered call ETFs and the difficulty then because it was a fairly new idea in Canada. Right. Uh, you know, buy right strategies have been around for a long time, but it was a new idea. I remember, you know, and, and of course at the time, maybe there wasn't, there wasn't the kind of demand there is for it, uh, potential demand for it now, but it's become pretty mainstream now, right? I mean, it, it, very, very mainstream. Yeah. You're looking at um, one out of every four dollars in the equity market last year, and the Canadian ETF space wanted to cover calls. And, and initially, just like the cash trade, you're kind of worried that it's like this self-directed, driven because there's a lot of self-directed investors in here. I would estimate about fifty percent of that flow is self-directed. Yeah, but you're worried that they're just chasing yield. Uh, but when you dive deeper into the hood, that's not actually the case. And that's the same with the cash trade because cash was probably second or third best performing asset class last year. And cover calls dramatically outperformed the equity market last year. And the reason is, is because of how high the volatility and premiums are in cover calls. So as a, someone who likes to talk about full cycle investing, I'm not actually a huge fan of cover call ETFs or cover call strategies historically. Yeah. Okay. And that's just because my career has been demarcated by incredible bull market for most of my career. Uh, I started during the financial crisis. So I've really ever yeah. known, you know, the bottom and up. And 
But that I, suspe particular... I suspect that that experience is the same for a lot of advisors as well. Yeah, which is for which the is, most part. You know, the the question was always why, right? But now, right. now what's changed is that the impetus has changed, right? Correct. Now, yes, thank you. Right. Yeah. So and go ahead. Go ahead. Then you go ahead. Um, and so what's that? What that means is that you're now being compensated for cover calls in a way from a risk return perspective that you weren't when volatility was low. And and so if interest rates are the primary driver of fixed income, volatility is the primary driver of growth and in income for cover calls. So just to give you some, you know, uh, historical context, you're, if I was to write a one month at the money call option, so a one month at the money call option means I'm going to give away all my upside, but I mean, you get all the premium on a NASDAQ 100 index option, right? And the NASDAQ is interesting because it's a slightly more volatile index and it's got a lot of the large U.S. names. Uh, that will currently give me about 2.5% a month in income, a right. month. So I'd be looking at nearly 30%. Uh, annualized income just from doing that. Right. That's what the market is giving you. And and the reason being is that in previous uh, podcasts we've done, I've talked about the incredible number of new investors that have come into the uh, marketplace in North America. And one of the things that they are doing is they're in a very large way buying call options. Um, this cohort of retail investors likes to go long options. And we've even seen some, I would say, troubling um, development such as the development of zero day expiry options, which is like options that you could just buy the day and they expire that day. Right. And they're proven to be quite popular. That created an incredible amount of demand for call options. So everyone on the other side of that trade um, is getting higher premiums in general. I would say that your average run rate on premiums has just gone up because of this demographic shift. Right. And then you've got the second part being is that as interest rates have risen, it's created more volatility in the marketplace, which happens with earnings and other types of, of market conditions. Interest rates, as they rise, it's a disruptor. It starts taking things. It creates volatility. And that's also created these high levels of premium. So you're, you know, with cover calls, all, your goal is to sort of generate, if an ideal cover call strategy, you're sort of trying to generate 70 to 80% of the capital upside appreciation and then a total end than a high level of monthly income. Like you're trying to create immediate income in exchange for selling some of your future return. But that total return ideally is sort of in line with what you would get with just going long the underlying equities. And what we're seeing right now is in some cases, you're actually doing better with a cover call strategy or you're very close to that total return. And because Canadian investors in particular have such a high demand for income, yeah. they're using as you highlighted what we call portable yield is they're saying, look, I don't know when the market conditions are going to stabilize. Let's take the NASDAQ 100, for example. So the NASDAQ 100 is probably going to give me a fair amount of equity growth over the next two to three years because it's a large mega cap U.S. name. It's had a big sell-off already, but I don't know when it stabilizes. Right. I'm going to go long into that, but through a cover call strategy, that's going to pay me 14% annualized yield right now because of how high premiums are. And I'm going to get Right now, somewhere in vicinity of 80 to 90% of the upside return because of how high those premiums are. And so for an income investor, they're getting paid to wait. And so our ETF, like QQCC, for example, yeah. uh, we started the year at like $12 million in AUM, and we're over $100 million in yeah. less than three months because of this very tactical, but also I, I'm what I'm trying to highlight now, very rational uh, approach to investing where I can generate from these high generational 
volatility level, a level of premium and income that hasn't existed before. Right, right. And it makes sense from a total return perspective. Yeah, not to mention that it's probably also a really good time to make a lateral move like that and and trigger some Correct. tax loss harvesting. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, well, so, we, so we saw a lot of that the other year, last year. Yeah. So so, but then you you could still carry that on into this year, even though Nasdaq's right. up twenty percent this year. Um, right. There's still lots of uh, you know downside capture on on the tax loss harvesting, right? Uh, available. You know, I don't know. You know, maybe the motivation's not as great as it was as as at the end of last year to uh, make a lateral move, but the opportunity is still there. Obviously, to to capture some of those tax losses and make a move to an income generating uh, version of of the uh, Nasdaq index, right? So right. exactly, or any other kind yeah, of equity you, index. Yeah, you you could do that. You could do that across you know the broader indices. You could do that across some of the uh, interesting alternative assets that are. Available like like gold, for example, getting paid to right. wait while you own gold, and um, I think I think you know it, it, it's it's fantastic. Now, um, you know, like maybe uh, I don't know if you want to if we want to start from square one, um, but you know, in terms of monetizing volatility, I think you've covered that, right? You, we we've talked yeah. about you know how how that happens. Um, and and I think pretty much advisors are, are familiar with how options work, obviously. But but obviously, in a heightened period of volatility, in a, in an elevated in a period of elevated volatility, you're going to get much higher much higher premium option premium when you sell when you when you write sell the calls the right when right. you sell the options. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I don't think anybody actually. I don't, I don't think you know the majority of advisors want to actually do it themselves, but. Um, oh. <laughs> That's why these strategies exist, right? It's far more efficient. How is the, um, what's the tax treatment on, like, so we've, you know, we've talked about making a strategic move for income, uh, making possibly even a strategic move for tax, you know, from a tax loss harvesting point of view, if you're going to maintain an allocation to uh, the same assets that you've already, that you already own, uh, that maybe you went through last year with losses. Um, and, there's also uh, there's also a a um, some tax preference treatment there tax, is tax preferential treatment on covered call income as well too right there is so yeah. uh, covered call income in Canada is viewed as hedging so it's actually viewed as capital gain right uh, there, there, there's there's a few nuances to this uh, one I mean most of the premium return that you generate from writing call options will be taxed as capital gain if it's net accretive to the total return. That is, you have a it more than what the capital appreciation is. Where covered call ETFs are tricky for, and this is for advisors and investors, where they're tricky to kind of get your head around is that at the end of the day, you really should be looking at the total return, right? Like if you're going to generate 20% annualized returns from the capital appreciation side of the NASDAQ 100, that's going to be taxed to you as capital, right? If you want to sell that. And so why would you give that up to earn 12% writing cover calls, right? You like that. That's something that people need to get their head around. But in both cases, the returns of these strategies are going to be capital gains because the premium income is taxed as capital gain. The exception is that if these ETFs run into a scenario where the capital appreciation, that is the capital appreciation of the underlying securities, is negative, but because these ETFs pay out income on a monthly basis, if they pay out more income than that capital appreciation, 
there's a shortfall. And that shortfall would mean that it's taxed as return on capital. Uh, return. And so that it works out that way. Well, it is better. I mean, it's better, but it, it, from a mathematical perspective, at the end of the year for tax reporting purposes, you're in a loss scenario and you've paid out income. So it, it's uh, re it's return of capital. Right. Um, and that's just, and, and you know, some people think, oh, is that grinding the nav? Is that, well, no, all the premium that's being paid by these, and most, that's not just our ETFs, most ETFs out there, all the premium that's being paid is being paid net of the net asset value, generally speaking, but you right. can run into a scenario where from a mathematical perspective, the net asset value, particularly at the end of the tax year, has been grinded to a certain degree because of that mismatch between income and what's being what's being paid out and what that NAV or net asset value is. So that's where you end up with ROC. And then some of these ETFs also pay out dividends, so that'd be Canadian eligible dividends. But for the most part, extraordinarily tax efficient, again, which just drives a lot more interest from retail investors who realize that they're getting that a, a benefit, extra tax benefit of generating this income versus what they would get with interest income from bonds or other products where it's taxed at a higher marginal rate. Mark, do you do you have any favorites? <laughs> do you have any well, any any that you think are particularly timely right now? Yeah. Um, and I like I you know I I think it's interesting. Like before, it's sort of been in in background in prep you know preparing for our conversation. You know, I I I was thinking in a way I haven't thought before, which was that you know these are alternative assets, right? And and you know that they're they're interesting. Uh, diversifying strategies really if you think about it like you, you know if you um I, I don't know if i would agree with that actually uh, okay. I, I would agree i would agree i would agree they're an alternative asset if you're writing all the way all the upside so if you're writing a strategy that's like 100 percent written on and you're writing it at the money or close to the money okay then you completely change the return profile of that underlying and i would say that's more of an alternative strategy I don't want to give it the. Of, I don't want to give it a CIFSC classification. It's just yeah, something but, I, I'm using the term yeah. very loosely. So you know. Yeah, but your yeah. but your risk return profile yeah. on a Nasdaq 100 cover call ETF is the Nasdaq 100, right? right. Especially on our products where we're not never writing more than 50 percent uh, of the portfolio, uh, and so on a Canadian equity product, it's Canadian equity, um, and that's really important because I actually get a lot of investors who will ask us, like, why did I have losses on this portfolio if I generated double-digit income, but I'm right. negative on the year? Well, it's like, well, yeah, you were invested in gold equities last year, which declined, like, 14% yeah. or whatever. So you're not, you didn't generate enough income to offset the losses in that portfolio. So but you're... That also seems not reinvesting. Yeah, it seems it's not reinvesting, right. but still, from a total return perspective, you're still negative. So... I, I, they're not, I'm just saying in my personal opinion, the majority of cover call ETFs, if they're writing on only less than 50% of the portfolio or less, I would say that they're not alternatives. They're just an equity alternative right, right, or right. an after that class alternative. Now I would say that a cover call ETF that writes 100% of the money or writes uh, at the money, I would say that's an alternative asset class because you meaningfully change the drivers of risk and return Right. Or that fit. So, I, and it and it's something that's important to highlight because I don't. A lot of people don't understand that the the equity risk is what drives most of your risk return profile on these strategies. But in terms of why one one why we're at where, where I'm in favor of, um, <laughs> I, I I so I, I I do think the gold story is very very interesting. And 
Right. I, I make a joke in presentations. I said the only thing historically I've liked less than covered calls over the last decade is is gold. Um, but I have you know you have to be open minded to regime changes and, and again going over my own cognitive bias of what the histor- history says and look at what's happening in the gold market and what's happening in the gold market is astounding to me. Uh, right. First and foremost, it's the central bank gold buying. Uh, central bank gold buying is the highest level it's been since uh, the we moved off the gold standard. So like I, and it's funny because I was looking at a chart where it's showing like the most amount of gold buying was like 1970, 1971. Well, that's right where we were moving off the gold standard. Right. Um, and why is that? Well, it's because there's an incredible unfunded liability from the emerging major emerging market economies by the sheer number of US dollars that they hold. So if we reach an inflection point on in interest rates and that's now going to be devalued, they need a store of value to protect themselves to this incredible devaluation of the U.S. dollar that could occur, as as well as I think also, I mean, re, you know, I think we can be pretty honest in that there's also macroeconomic and security right. concerns about the prevalence of the U.S. dollar. Uh, that is an incredible driver for gold, and gold equities in particular really haven't meaningfully participated in that upside that we've seen in gold, and there's usually sort of a three to six month lag. Um, and so the earnings, price to earnings ratios on gold stocks, all I'm saying is the valuation of gold stocks seem a little high, but they're nowhere near as high as where gold's actually trading. And they right. get all that leverage on uh, what occurs. So the covered call strategy on gold makes a lot of sense to me because it's a slightly volatile equity category, but your premiums there are very attractive on gold. And there does seem to be a very large macroeconomic shift where gold is becoming much more in prevalence from a macroeconomic perspective because of those macroeconomic concerns about the U.S. dollar, as well as those larger security uh, security concerns right. about the U.S. dollar. And so this is an asset class that's very much in play, uh, and it's not being really meaningfully valued yet, I think, relative to those, those larger items. Now, a gold bug would come out and tell you about M1, M2 money supply, but I feel like that's a bit of a broken record because they tell me it doesn't matter what time of the day or year it is. They're going to tell you about M1, M2 money supply and devaluation of U.S. currency. But those these are new factors yeah. that I think have forced us to reevaluate the value of gold. Well, like I think like most things in the market and most most trends and especially the change in regime that we're seeing, you know, it happens it happens very slowly. You know, like Hemingway, it happens very slowly and then right. all of a sudden, right? Yeah, you get hit in the face. <laughs> but it hasn't, I mean, it hasn't yet, right? I mean, like people expected, yeah. I think in the, in the face of inflation last year, people definitely expected, oh, gold's going to come through. And, you know, especially the gold bugs thought that, but, but you know, it's happening more slowly. And then, and then if there is a critical mass at some point that tips the scale, uh, you know, an event, some exogenous thing happening, um, then maybe you get that that tipping point where where gold you know takes off to a whole new level. Well, and it's um, a deflationary asset, so like yeah. it will. If you if we hit a recessionary condition, gold should do well because it's a store of value, and at the value of all dollar denominated assets that comes in, gold holds up. So sure, and that and then held true through history. Yeah, and we we only saw recently the dollar come off its peak. So correct. Um, you know, remains to be seen where it goes from here, and obviously if rates. Rates start to, uh, you know, um, regress back to lower levels, or or the terminal rate eventually gets cut. Um, you know that that will change the dynamics for the U.S. dollar further, right? I mean, right? Yeah. Um, the 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 only exception to sort of that narrative is 
I do think the SVB collapse was a watershed moment. Um, and again, my formative years in this business are the financial crisis where I was a journalist covering that. So I got right. really deep into that particular um, segment of the market, especially being a frontline kind of reporter on that. And the echoes of that were fairly similar to me. Um, so SVP collapse, uh, what that effectively did in my opinion, and I could be wrong, right? And I'm wrong all the time. So like, let's, let's have that caveat there. But effectively, in my opinion, um, the Fed's willingness to backstop all of those treasuries, uh, the health maturity treasuries, uh, and create that discount window right. for the bank to access was effectively a form of quantitative easing. We call it whatever you want, but it's created an incredible expansion in a very short period of time of the Fed's balance sheet. Right. So they're in a weird situation right now where they have interest rates high and they're basically taking all of these treasuries onto their balance sheet from the banks when there's hundreds of billions of dollars of these. And it's kind of hard not to see that they have to be, if they're not going to cut, they have to be done. Right. Otherwise, they're just inflating away their own liability on their on their balance sheet. So there was a rescue and a bailout in place to stop financial crisis contagion. And it's primarily because it wasn't just those small regional banks. They were just the most impaired from a deposit taking perspective. It wasn't just those small regional banks. It was the small regional banks that had these holdings. They were just impaired because of the run on their deposits. Right. right. So their their balance sheet mix up. But there's hundreds of billions of held the maturity treasuries in lost position across all the major banks. Exactly. So that's, that remains so that's to be. Huge, yeah. Yeah. And that's an incredible amount of contagion that the Fed has to reconcile with. And it is very similar to the financial crisis. I don't, it, it, we had a similar situation where it wasn't treasuries, it was mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps. But this stuff can really expand very quickly and it can completely dry up all the liquidity in the system. Yeah. So the Fed did step in to fix that. Um, and that shows kind of a moment where we probably had very close to a breaking point in the marketplace. I do believe that. Now, has it been solved? That remains to be seen. But, you know, the ability to continue to increase interest rates now becomes very much a buyer beware kind of scenario where you're just going to continue to draft test what's clearly a fragile financial system. And if that financial system falls out, then we end up with that two, three standard deviation event where everything does break. So that, yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people, yeah, it's true. I mean, a a lot of people who are circling the fed, former fed officials, you know, uh, are, are all like saying, Hey, you know what? Like stop, right. Stop and wait, like just watch, like, like, you know, uh, I don't know, Claudia some, you know, she, she's a stay at home macro, former fed official. You know, she, she's basically saying like, just pause and wait and watch, just watch what, like, wait till, wait a bit. <laughs> what is this gung ho thing that you have to, you know, that you have to channel Paul Volcker and, and keep on, keep at it. it right. It, it's, it's crazy that, that, you know, I think, I think the interesting thing about, you know, the Fed window, like, it, you know, there was all these questions at the time, right? But why didn't they go to the Fed window sooner? Why didn't they go? You know, and number one, I think, was that they couldn't because they were held to maturity assets, right? So, right. Um, number two, who else has held to maturity assets like that? There was a hundred, hundred and ninety billion, or hundred fifty, hundred sixty-five billion dollar drawdown at the Fed window that week, the right. week of the the week of the closure. Um, but 
that was very public, right? A lot of the regional banks don't want to go to the Fed window because just like, you know, they made all the big banks take the money at, at uh, the bailout so that nobody would get the blame, you know, like the firing right. squad. Um, you know, the firing squad uh, trick, the control control shooter. Um, nobody nobody gets singled out, right? So the regional banks don't want to get singled out, and um, so then so then the more quiet window for uh, liquidity is the federal home loan bank FHLB facility, which drew down over three hundred billion dollars the following weeks. Right, but it's not That's the Fed window, so so no. it's not it's not publicly visible. It's it's a you know it's a swapping loan facility, right? And 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 uh, restoral. Um, the other funny thing that happened, right, was that was that the big banks that received the deposits, you know, basically said we don't want it and gave it back to the, <laughs> gave it some, gave it you know lent it back to the regionals. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and the bond market and the bond market the whole time is pricing this in as a backstop, right? That's yeah. what, so rates basically hit a high at this period. Um, and the curve starts to be more inverted because again, right or wrong, this could end up being like the worst consensus trade ever, right? It really could. We could end up being completely wrong on the, I mean, the aggregate wisdom of the market could be completely wrong on the curve and that the, the curve may blow out and go high, you know, and go back to normalization. But what they're betting on is that. It isn't that you're going to see these short-term rates come down and go where the curve is going because they, they view that the Fed is not going to want to be just continuously increasing the unfunded liability on this balance right. sheet, right? And so that that's how the bond market has reacted. Now, this is policy versus, you know, versus investing. There could be a situation where interest rates stay high at that level and everyone who's betting on this pivot gets absolutely destroyed. Um, and again, it mean mathematically and from a risk perspective, it goes back to our start of our conversation, but it means that really the only safe part of the curve, if you, you know, if you're not being tactical or you're not trying to have a conviction play is really to be short because it's the front end you're protected. Yeah. And then and that's just because you've got the fed saying one thing and you've got the market saying something else. If either one of them is wrong, then you're, you're, you're going to end up in a situation where things unravel very, very quickly. Well, what if the, what if the reality is that the, you know, the Fed has overshot, I mean, the, the likelihood that the Fed has overdone, you know, over tightened is one possibility. And the likelihood, the other likelihood is that the bond market has overshot its pessimism. Right. So somewhere in the middle is that sweet spot, right? And that's that's kind of the somewhere in the middle for for covered call strategies as well. I think, given that, that right that we're in yeah. that we're in this period of volatility, you know, right. it's not it's not you know a thirty handle or uh, you know it's not that kind of of level of volatility, but it's definitely sort of you know the temperatures turned up. It's like a light you know like a fever. Right. Well, as right. I mentioned, it's a third way to generate yeah. income because if you've got interest rate volatility and you've got uncertainty around inflation, then that's actually creating volatility, that volatility is a driver of income for a cover call. And again, historically, you can look at a chart to see implied premium. They're higher for cover call strategies simply because of this back and forth and this this volatility that exists. So you're being given, I don't want to call it a gift, but you're definitely being given an advantage right now to be a call writer because you're getting compensated for these strategies. So you're absolutely right, Pierre. Like, yeah. I mean, it, 
a very, very attractive market conditions for call ready. All right. I think, I think, uh, I think we covered that topic pretty well, but yeah, I, I love the fact, you know, cover calls. It's funny, you know, you have this strategy, you've had it for so long. It, it, it's always there. It's always, you know, it's been there forever, like av available, but really the conditions were, were not optimal for it as they are now. Correct. And, and that's the key to our conversation. Yeah. Mark, um, Mark, thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. I love talking to you. We love having you and, and I love, I like know. being here. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure is always here. Great to see you again too. Thank you.